Good morning. Well, hey, if you have uh, been with us for the last few weeks, you've probably noticed that we've been in a kind of a brief subsection of the sermon series Pastor Dave's been preaching on. We've been looking at uh, the book of Acts. He's moved in and out of the book of Acts, and we've looked at this idea that I think he's tried to nail home to you, that we worship a communicative God that wants to speak to you, that wants to lead you, that wants to guide you. And, you know, Dave's talked about God, you know, speaking in the whisper. He's encouraged us to order our lives so that we can hear God and we can listen to God. And I, and I hope you've walked away encouraged that we're not off on our own, that we're not off on our own waiting, wondering what does God want for us, that in fact God does want to speak to us if we will simply listen. That said, I've got to be honest, um, is, is irreverent as this is, this is going to sound on the surface. It's been my experience at any time I hear a person begin a sentence with, God has told me, I start to cringe. Until I hear the second part of that sentence. God spoke to me, God told me, God is leading me. And it's like every muscle in me just goes, oh my gosh, where is this going to go? And it sounds awful to say as a pastor, doesn't it? And yet... It's experience that has brought me to that. Because too often I've heard someone start with that beautiful beginning of a sentence and the way they finish left, leaves me shaking my head. At best, sometimes someone says something that may, God is leading them to do something that makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. Or at worst, I've heard a number of people claim that God is leading them to do something or has told them to do something that is outright unbiblical. And, 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 and it's difficult to say anything because now I'm supposed to contradict the word of the Lord in this person's life. So I've heard people come to me and they've said, yeah, Pastor Chris, you know, God has told me to become part of this ministry and to volunteer and to serve and I'll do whatever you need. And those are the moments you live for. <laughs> Great! Okay! And, and you get everything set up for this person to begin using their gifts for God's glory. And two weeks later they come and they say, God told me not to serve in this ministry. And you think, did God get some kind of new information that changed his mind? Doubtful. I, I've seen people, I've, I've heard, in this case I, I've heard men come to me and say, I feel God leading me to date this woman. And I've sat there and thought, but that's not your spouse. God's really telling you to date this person that's not your spouse. Yes. Okay. We've got some work to do. Dating, it happens all the time. I mean, just recently, a few months ago, it happened. I've heard, seen it happen again and again, but it happened to a good friend of mine. He, he goes, he meets another good Christian girl. They go on a few dates. He's trying to be the respectful guy, take it slow, make sure that they're honoring the Lord in their relationship. He's praying about it. They're talking about Jesus. They go on like three or four dates. He thinks things are going great. Great. They're having fun. They're laughing. All, all their friends around them are like, yeah, you guys are the perfect match. They're sitting, you know, over dinner one night. And just out of nowhere, she says, God told me not to date you anymore. He did? Yeah, he, he, because he didn't tell me that. <laughs> yeah, he, he told me not to date you anymore. Well, well, is there, is there something I've done that, that's wrong? Have I offended you in some way? No, you haven't offended me at all. Okay, um, do you just feel like we're not getting along? Or are we not kind of a good match? Or are we not? No, we're a great match, and you're just the kind of guy I'd want to be with. It's not about you. Okay, how many of you heard of that? It's not about you. Okay, 
Is there a part of our relationship that's not honoring the Lord? Do you feel like maybe we've kind of strayed outside of God's direction? No, our relationship has been perfectly holy. He's like, okay, you like me, you're attracted to me, we have fun, and our relationship is holy. Huh? This poor guy walked away feeling like in one day he got rejected by a sweet girl and the third person of the Trinity. In one day. And so sometimes, you know, we... We do well, and I, again, I hope you've been encouraged by what we've meditated on these last few weeks. God wants to speak to us. But there is a very real danger that we will confuse the voice of God in our lives with our own voice, with the voice of others, with the voice of the world, with the voice of the enemy against us in this world, and we'll walk away responding to a voice that is not, in fact, the voice of God. So this morning, that's what we're going to... We're going to sit on how do we know that it is God's voice that we're hearing and responding to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we're, we're trying to meditate this, God, we pray you'd make it clear. God, I'm, I'm just going to take it for granted that we are here this morning because we want to hear from you. And God, um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of little gods in this world that pretend to be you. It's, sometimes it's our desires. Sometimes it's what we want, sometimes it's other religions, sometimes it's other people that we feel like we need to please or we're told we need to obey. And God, most of all, we want to walk away this morning knowing how we can hear you and being emboldened to be careful that when we say, this is what God is leading me to do, we're right on the money. We, we, we are faithfully responding to your voice. Please speak to us now, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you want to open up to Acts 19... You know, we're going to kind of look this morning. There's about three chapters in Scripture in Acts where I think this idea is teased out. I am not going to read all three chapters to you because that would be the sermon. So um, we're going to kind of bebop through Acts 19 and 20 and 21 and look at this running narrative featuring the Apostle Paul here in Acts 19 starting in verse 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must also visit Rome. Here we see the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. He's been spending some time in the great city of Ephesus. And he begins discussing, okay, I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, the, the English Standard Version, I think, adds a, a good part that... Uh, the Greek has. It talks about he resolves in the spirit. He resolves in the spirit that he is going to go to Greece. You'll see this, or to Jerusalem and then Rome rather. You'll see that even more clearly when we look at chapter 20 and 21. He resolves in the spirit that he's got to go to Jerusalem and Rome. It's kind of his first step. You get the sense that Paul has prayed about this step. You get the sense that Paul has thought about this step. You get the sense that Paul's agonized and, and he's come to a firm conviction, not just, well, yeah, I feel like going to Jerusalem because it's a really happening place, but, but that he feels that God is telling him, impressing on him, giving him, you know, a burden to go to Jerusalem and then to go to Rome. And there's, there's three checks I kind of want to sit on this morning, three ways in which we can clarify, is this the voice of God? in my life. And, and, and the first one we're going to look at is this idea of what uh, some theologians call an internal call. Do I, do I have an internal call, an internal burden? There's just that moment where I feel like God is saying, do this. Talk to this person. 
Go to this place. Date or don't date this person. Read this. Go here. Serve in this ministry. That moment where we feel a burden, as Paul feels here, this is what I want to do. It says in chapter 20 that he was constrained by the Holy Spirit to go there. He felt bound. He felt in chains. He felt like this is something I must do whether I want to do or not. And that's significant. Because sometimes when we have this internal call, this burden from God to do something, it may be something that we in fact don't want to do. But the burden is still there. Pastor Ron McManus puts it really funny. He talks about how his son was six years old. And his son came to him and his son said, Dad, what does God's voice sound like? And I just love it. I'm reading in the book and it made me encouraged, you know, when I can read about a popular pastor and he stumbles over an answer, I got hope for myself. And um, so he tries to run through this answer with his son. This is how you hear the voice of God. And, and then he begins praying regularly that God would make it clear to his son what the voice of God sounds like. And so, you know, fast forward a few years, his son's in junior high, right? So he's 11 or 12. He goes to his first junior high summer camp. And he goes up in the mountains and he's there. And kind of midway through the week, dad is just missing his son. And he's like, he's never been away for this long. I miss him. I'm going to go up. I'm going to go visit my son. I'm going to go see how my boy is doing. And so he pulls up into the camp, feeling like this is going to be great, great little mini family reunion for two hours. And then the camp counselors greet him. They say, Pastor McManus, you're here already. What do you mean I'm here already? Well, we called you. you. You did? Yeah, you need to take your son home. What did he do? Well, your son beat up another kid. He beat up another kid, Pastor. And, um, unless, and, and he's really... He doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to go home. He doesn't want to apologize. He refuses to admit that it was wrong. And unless he repents right now, you've got to take him home and he can't come back. It's like, man, this is not what I expected. And he goes and he finds his son and his son is there like bags packed, jacket on. All right, dad, let's go. Got that little face on that if you're a parent, you've seen. I'm ready. And well, and he, well son, why don't we just go for a walk for a few minutes? Dad, we're going home. Well, how about we just, Dad, we're going home. Just a few minutes. Okay. So they go in there and walk for a few minutes. Sits his son down by a lake, surrounded by trees. They're sitting there. And says to his son, Son, is there um, any voice inside you? Do you have any impression over, you know, what you did? Yep. Good, good. Okay. Well, you know, what is that voice saying that, you know, you, you should do right now? Saying I should apologize and stick it out, Dad. Great, 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 great. And, and who do you think that voice is in? It's God, Dad. Good, good, good. It's God. That's great. And so what do you think? Dad, that doesn't mean I want to obey. I don't care if it's God. I don't want to do it, Dad. I want to go home. Okay. <laughs> His son ended up staying. But um, sometimes, you know, we can hear the voice of God. We can hear this internal call. We can have this burden that Paul had. But sometimes we don't, we don't like what we're hearing. And so again, it's just good to remind ourselves that God doesn't always speak in a way that is honey to us at the time. But as surely as the Bible tells us that God speaks to us, as surely as the Bible tells us God gives us this internal call, the Bible also tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. And who can understand it? The Bible reminds us that twisted as we are by our sin, it's really easy for us to make our desires out to be God and His voice, even when they're not. 
And so if we make big decisions simply based on this internal call and this alone without going any further, we really run the risk of acting as if it's God's voice when it's really simply our own desires that have nothing to do with God's voice because our hearts are twisted. And so, so we need more than that. So let's flip forward to chapter 20, starting in verse 2. Again, these are long, excellent chapters talking about Paul and his trip here. Verse 2, he traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in, wait a minute, no. It's always great when you're reading and you think you're reading the wrong verse. Oh, no, I'm reading the right verse, sorry, my bad. Um, Where he's speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months, because the Jews had made a plot against him just as he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychemus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Note the detail. On the surface, it seems irrelevant, but nothing in Scripture is irrelevant. The detail we get about each of these men's names and their hometown, where they come from. And here in Acts, we're thinking, well, why does he give that? Why are all these people from all these assorted places going with Paul to Jerusalem? Is the weather nice in Jerusalem that time of year? Why are they going there? Well, you know, if, if, you, read, if you read 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7, you see in that section, those seven chapters of Scripture, an ongoing conversation by the Apostle Paul talking about a collection he is making for the churches in Jerusalem. See, the churches in Jerusalem are... They don't have it well off. They're poor. They need money. We're not talking about people. We're talking about people with a very high level of unemployment and underemployment. And the churches in Asia and in Greece that are listed here where he is ministered are a lot more financially well off. And it is in this period of time, which he narrates in 2 Corinthians, that we hear Paul talk about a collection that he made. And, 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 he, talk, and he goes to great length to say, you know what, I didn't take the money and I didn't put it in my pocket. I took this offering from all of your churches and then I was accompanied by representatives from your churches to go with me to Jerusalem so that you would know I didn't walk away with the dough. I, I, I faithfully discharged my duty to take the money from you and to give it to these other people. Why, why are we saying this? Well, earlier on in the book of Acts, Paul was told by the Jerusalem council, I'm assuming Dave preached on it last spring, they said, remember the poor. Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. We have these two biblical injunctions to care for those around us, to meet the needs of those around us, to sacrificially love and give to those around us. And that is exactly what we see Paul doing here. And this is the second check. This is the second step in saying, am I hearing the voice of God? Am I saying, you know, God is never going to speak and tell you to do something that the Bible doesn't support. Here we see Paul going on a trip to Jerusalem, and the reason he wants to go is to show love for the Christians that are there and to bring them an offering from the churches, which they desperately need. He's got this burden from God, and that burden directly aligns with the teachings of Scripture. And so this is significant for us. So whenever we go off on our little, God is impressing on me, God is burdening me, God is telling me, the second thing we've got to do is say, does this mesh with the Word of God? The same God who speaks to us through the Holy Spirit today 
spoke through the Holy Spirit to the writers that wrote the Bible and inspired them to write it. And he's not going to contradict himself. The world says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is not going to violate one of his commands. God is not going to call you to have an affair. I don't care what you think he said. He's not going to say it. God is not going to call you to lie to get ahead. God is not going to call you to gossip even if you're doing it in the context of sharing a prayer request, which we are so good at doing. God is not going to call you to do those things because he's not going to call you to do something that violates his word. And so when you're there saying, how is God directing me? You want to say, well, does it mesh with scripture? And so, and so turn with me to Psalm 119. You know, if you go, um, Psalm, you take the Bible, you split it in half. Psalms is in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 119 is this excellent psalm, which is long, and we're not going to read the whole of right now, even though it's awesome, because I have other things I want to say. So here we are in Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Free Baptist Church, may God look down on us and say, this is true of you. My words is sweeter to you than honey. You love my law. You love my word. You hate evil. You find the right and the wrong by looking at my word. And that is what guides you and instructs you and leads you. May God look down on us and say, I see this present in you. The psalmist expects God to speak, direct, and guide us through his word. And so should we. So should we. We're talking about wanting the Holy Spirit. Well, we hear the Holy Spirit speaking through the Word of God. Now, some might say in response, well, Pastor Chris, that's great and all, but, you know, the Bible doesn't tell me whether or not, you know, it's not, I'm not going to open up and it's not going to say, thou shalt date James or thou shalt not date Julie. It doesn't say that. So, so how am I supposed to use the Bible to direct me about things like that that the Bible doesn't speak about? And they're right, sort of. Yes, the Bible does not have an index of names, like, you know, when you're, you're having a kid and, you know, you can go up the name and, it, you know, you have like an encyclopedia of names and it tells you, yeah, the Bible's not like that. You don't look it up and say, Jean, oh, I can or can't date her. No, it doesn't do that. But the Bible gives us a picture of a man of noble character and godly character. It gives us a picture of what a woman of noble and godly character looks like. The Bible talks about being equally yoked and unequally yoked. The Bible shows us in narrative form the danger of having relationships based on the not based on the foundation God has laid. And it shows us what happens. I mean, in many ways, the entire book of Genesis from chapter 3 on shows you what happens when 
you practice a form of marriage other than God wanted. You just see negative fallout after fallout after fallout. God shows us. And so in a very real sense, it is possible to look at someone that you're interested in and say, as I look at this person, how do they measure up against the character I see in Scripture? Lift it up as a godly man or woman. What am I going to get? Our problem in these areas is often not whether or not God speaks to us through His Bible, but whether or not we are willing to humble ourselves and submit to its revelation. It's too easy for us to put the Bible beneath us and say, oh, I like the Bible, and I like how God speaks through the Bible, but when I want to do this, or I want to date this person, or I want to say this, I'm going to say the Bible doesn't speak to that issue, clearly. And I'm going to hide behind the clear defense. Instead of saying, I'm going to humble myself beneath the Word of God, submitting myself to God's revelation through it, and act based on that. That is our problem. God speaks to us. We look to hear His voice through the internal call. We check this against His inspired written Word. And finally, the third check is that we look for outside confirmation. Let's go back to, to Acts. Go to Acts 21. Sorry I got you moving all around. Here we are in Acts chapter 21. The last leg of Paul's journey before he actually gets to Jerusalem. Starting in verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way... The Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Early on, if we you could glance at maybe later in chapter 20, Paul tells us in every city he goes to, the Holy Spirit tells him, you are going to be imprisoned and suffer affliction for your faith. Every, he says, every city I go to on my way to Jerusalem, that's what the Holy Spirit's telling me. Every, just about every commentator says they think that, you know, that, that testimonies through other prophets like this guy Agabus who God is speaking to and they're coming to Paul and they're talking to Paul and Paul says yeah I'm going to Jerusalem and this is what I think is going to happen to me and they're saying yes in fact you need to go to Jerusalem and this is going to happen to you it's what we can think of as the the external call of God or the the affirmation of other believers he's had the the internal burden to go his reasons for going mesh with the Word of God. And now he has other believers coming alongside of him and saying, yes, you need to go. And guess what? This is what's going to happen. This is what is going to happen. God knows that what he has for Paul will be challenging. Very challenging. And he's giving him the grace and the mercy of giving him this, this outside affirmation. Because you know what? God doesn't want Paul or us to be at the place in life where all of a sudden things go wrong and we look back and we say, did I hear God wrong? Did I make a mistake? Which is so easy for to do if we just operate on our own wisdom and only according to that internal call. We make a decision, we begin walking in that direction, things tank and we think, I messed up. 
I didn't hear him right. It, it shouldn't have gone south like this. I'm being punished. This is not what God would have led me to. And, and we have no encouragement. Yet, when we have wrestled over that decision, and we've had many around us prayerfully say, this is what we feel like God wants you to do. Even then when things tank, if they tank, we can look back and say, everyone agreed with me. Every wise person in my life, all of my, my counselors, all of my encouragers, my pastor, my small group, the, the people in my Bible study, they all came and they prayed and they said, yes. And so maybe it's not that I misheard God. Maybe this is what God had for me, and He is right here with me, even as He was right there when He was directing me. There is hope in that. There is encouragement in that that we need, particularly when things do not work out the way we would choose or ask for. And it may not come as a surprise. Do you notice, this is one of the, the I think, the, the wonderful things about the text. They, they prophesy this is what's going to happen to you. Based on verse 14, when they say, you know, the Lord's will be done, they know it's God's will for the, him to go to Jerusalem and to be arrested. And they try to convince him not to go. I love the honesty in the Bible. I don't think it's that we're dealing with a bunch of people that are uncommitted to the Lord and saying, hey, Paul, just disobey God. It'll be great. I think we're dealing with a lot of people that are committed to the Lord and committed to Paul. We're talking about people that he might have led to the Lord. We're talking about people that he might have baptized. We're talking about people that, that have been with him and, and have heard his teaching and that he's counseled and he's cried with. And now they're hearing, yeah, I'm going to go away and I'm I might never see you again. You know, if, if, if one day Pastor Dave got up here and he said, God's calling me to this dangerous place halfway around the world and I'm going to get arrested, I would think we would be broken as a congregation even if we were convinced it was what God wanted him to do. And we would be right to be broken because it would be a sign of our love. They love him. They love him. We're reminded that sometimes God calls us to things that stretch us and that are designed to take us out of our comfort zones, to shake us out of our American sensibilities. Notice not our Christian sensibilities. You know, there's this old Christian cliche, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And every time I hear it, I want to jump on it. Because it's only half true. And in trying to be simple, it misses, I think it misses the emotion. Yeah, the best place to be is in the center of God's will. But that doesn't always feel like the safest place at the time, does it? Because say, to, to say that to Jeremiah. Say that to Elijah. Say that to Isaiah. Say that to Paul as he's marching towards imprisonment. The safest place to be does not, it does not always feel like the center of God's will. It's where we must be. It's where we have to be. It's where God indeed will be with us. But, but, but it is as if standing at the edge of the precipice where we are overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and trembling. And yes, that is where God wants us to be because He is there. And He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. But it is the place of risk of danger, of uncertainty. The place where we really have to say, am I trusting in myself or am I trusting in the living God? God brings us to the place where we have to sometimes let go of every other support around us in order to feel His hand upholding us. It's exactly what He's doing here to Paul. That is a difficult truth. 
You know, I, ever since my kids were little, I've prayed over them, and they're still little, right? I've prayed over them that God would use them in a significant way. And, you know, about a year ago, it was the first time it hit me that what if God answers that prayer in a way that as a dad I would be remarkably uncomfortable with? What if one day my son or daughter comes to me and says, God's calling me to go, you know, serve in Afghanistan, and I'm going to go. And some of you in this room, you have, you, you, you've, you've processed that where your kids have in fact come forward and say, God wants me to go and go here far away where I might not even be able to talk to you any day. So I'm fearful in the thinking of the future. You're fearful in the moment, perhaps. And it was my wife who looked at me as I was just bawling, bawling like a little kid. And my wife said, Chris, remember, they're not our kids. They're God's kids. We're stewards. All we can do is care for them. And it's easy to say now, and I'm afraid that I might have to say it differently one day, but that's the glorious place. We want to be in the center of God's will, but it does not always feel like a safe, easy place. So let us expect God to speak to us. Let us listen to the living God as He speaks to us. But in order to prevent ourselves from going after our own inclinations or the voice of this world, let us make sure we have the internal call. Let us, let us pair it up against Scripture. Let us seek outside confirmation from other believers to see what they say. And you want to close a few just practical considerations as we tease this out. Number one, the bigger the decision, the more confirmation you should have. Again, notice in this one, Paul, every city he stops on, God tells him that this is what's going to happen. Well, the stakes are pretty high for him. And for some of us, we have to make decisions with pretty high stakes. When we talk about changing a job, or moving a family, or starting a ministry, or stopping a ministry, I don't know. There are a lot of big decisions we make that have a significant impact on ourselves, on our families, on those around us. And we want to make sure we don't go off the reservation. And so the bigger decision you have in your life, I would encourage you, make sure you have more, more and more counselors. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs, for the lack of guidance, a nation falls, but many advisors make a sure victory. And, and, and a point of clarification, when I say outside clarification, don't go to someone who's going to tell you what you want to hear. We have those people in our lives, and we love them. But they never disagree with us. They always tell us, I'll support you. The, go to someone who's going to love you enough, potentially, to say, I think you're wrong. You know, I had one of those on my, um, my team at my last church, and he made my life very hard some days. But it was good for me. Because he kept me really to my knees saying, am I listening to God when I say this is where we're going or is this just what I want? He forced me to, to, to agonize and away over it and to include a lot of other people outside of myself. And that was healthy. You know, the, the early Puritans, when they came to America, anytime someone was, felt called to be a pastor or wanted to move from one church to a different church, they would come forward and they would say, this is the call of God, this is the internal call I feel. And they'd have to answer a lot of questions. And they'd have this council of other ministers who would then listen and then pray for them. And then they'd come back and say, yeah, we think God is in this, or no, you really need to just stay where you are. And, and you don't have to be a pastor to follow that advice. You know, the bigger the decision, the more outside confirmation we ought to have. Second thing, be careful about breaking commitments according to God's leading. 
New things come along. New opportunities come along. Sometimes we're like, oh, good, I, I want to drop this in order to do that. You know, I had this illustrated once. Um, I was trying to nag someone to go on a mission trip. It's not a youth pastor thing to do at all, is it? And I'm trying to nag this person to go on a mission trip, and they tell me, no, they've made this commitment to a group of people, you know, and they need to break this commitment in order to go. And I'm thinking, well, you, you know, God's more important, so, you know, let's just go. Come on. You, you want to go? Let's just go. And they said to me, they said, yeah, you know, but ev- everyone on this team that I'm a part of, they know I'm a believer, and I actively try to witness to them. And if they know I break that commitment to go to do a mission trip, is that going to increase my witness, or is that going to damage my witness? You know? There are times that God wants to be first in our lives. There are times when God may call us to break one commitment to fill another. Sure. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. Third, third point. Some of us need to just do something. There are some of us in this room that wait so long to hear the voice of God to do something that we don't do anything. And quite frankly, we like it that way. I mean, isn't it just kind of like normal in Christian circles when someone says to you, I'll pray about it? You know they mean no. You know that it means God's going to have to come down with a sledgehammer, bop them over the head to make them change their mind. Because you can't just say no, but they mean you say, I'll pray about it. Then when you come back and say, I think God doesn't want me to, for the person to disagree with you, they've got to disagree with God. So it's a really good thing to say if you want to be lazy. And I'm not trying to diminish the importance of prayer. Please hear me. I'm trying to address the, um, our context. And I see that rampant in our context. We feel like we have to have a dream or a vision or a word from the Lord or testimony from 30 people before we do anything. And so we do nothing. Some of us just need to do something. We need to take the demands of God seriously in His Word and say, I'm going to do something about it. There's a need. Oh, I'm going to meet that need before God tells me to meet that need because He's already told me to meet that need. I don't need something else. It is not a shock that most... Christian social movements have begun out of a godly person seeing a need and meeting that need before they had a vision, as good as those are. And the more they went in that direction, then they felt the internal call. Then they felt the external call and the affirmation. The further they went, the more they felt God's pleasure. You know, Millard Fuller saw a need of a lot of people that were homeless. And he was inspired by another man by the name of Clarence Jordan, and his concern for the poor. And Fuller latched on to God's heart. And he started Habitat for Humanity. And today they build or renovate 12 houses a day around the world. Yeah, the more he went in that direction, the more he felt God say, yes, yes, yes. But before he heard God call, he just said, yeah, this is something that's important to you. You know, God, if it's important to you, it should be important to me. Yes. He did something. You know, um, Gary Hogan is the founder of International Justice Mission. And as he was serving in um, the Department of Justice, and as he began to learn about the horrors of sex trafficking around the world, he said, gosh, this is the type of thing that I don't think God would be proud of. And he started praying about it. He started talking. He started moving. And the more he moved, the more confirmation came. He writes in his book, um, I vividly remember when I finally had to make a decision to abandon my career at the U.S. Department of Justice to become the first employee of a not-for-profit organization that didn't yet actually exist called the International Justice Mission. I had worked for three years, three years, he spent working on this with friends on the idea of IJM and was very excited in theory 
about the dream of following Jesus in the work of justice in the world. But then I had to actually act. I had to walk into the Department of Justice and turn in my badge. I tried to be very brave and very safe. That is to say, I walked into my boss's office and asked for a one-year leave of absence, which they politely declined. I was suddenly feeling very nervous. What was I afraid of? As I thought about it, I feared humiliation. If my little justice ministry idea didn't work, no one was going to die. If IGM turned out to be a bad idea and collapsed, my kids weren't going to starve. I had a good education. I could probably get a job again very quickly. The fact is, I would be terribly embarrassed. Having told everybody about my great idea, they would know it was a bad idea or that I was a bad leader. Either way, it would be humiliating. So there it was, my boundary of fear. I sensed God inviting me to an extraordinary adventure of service. Here again, you begin to feel the external call coming in after three years of movement. But deep inside, I was afraid of looking like a fool and a loser. This was, ex this was actually very helpful to see because it helped me get past it. When I am older, I thought, would I really want to look back and say, I sensed God calling me to lead a movement to rescue people who desperately needed an advocate in the world, but I was afraid of getting embarrassed and I never even tried. Fear is normal, even among the earnest and devout, but it can be overcome. But first we must see the opportunity that it provides, a revelation that only comes as we step forward to the precipice of action. We want to hear God's voice, but some, in this church, like many churches in America, a lot of us, we just need to act. We just need to move. We just need to do something. Fourth point. Glenn closed. Finally, in following the story of Paul and his call back to Jerusalem, we do well to be reminded of someone else. You see, there was another man who felt called by God toward the close of his ministry to go back to the city of Jerusalem. There was another man who three times in the Gospel of Mark looked towards Jerusalem and the city that killed God's prophets and resolutely said, that is where I am going. People loved him and they tried to convince him not to go. They begged him not to go. They told him he wasn't hearing God right. They were ready to fight with him, but they were not ready to die. They were not ready to watch him die, that is even though it was the foreordained plan of God. Jesus Christ went to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, lived the perfect life that we cannot live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins and the just wrath it occasions in the heart of God. So that if we would come to Him in repentance and in faith, we might have life. We might have life. We might have hope. As we look at this text, we are reminded that sometimes we just need to come to Jesus this morning. We need to come to the Savior of our souls. We need to stop waiting. We need to stop investigating. We need to stop putting it off. We need to come in repentance and faith to the God who died so that we didn't have to. The God who died in our place, condemned in our place, He stood some of us this morning might just need to come to Jesus and stop being the, living as the enemy of God and become the child of God that He delights in, that He rejoices in, that He sings over. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I just, I just pray, God, that you would help us to get right with you. God, whether we have ever been saved or whether we have been drifting away, I pray that you would bring us back to the foot of your cross. I pray that we would see your wounds and see our sin in those wounds. I pray that we would re- you'd bring us to rejoicing over our salvation. That you would give us encouragement in our right standing before you, those of us who have come to you. I pray that you would give us strength to live faithfully and fervently to the glory of your great name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.